Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where you'll find broad topics, an unconventional dyad, and one shared goal. Educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real, raw, and unpolished. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 14 of the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today, we have Dr. Natalie Christian with us. Dr. Christian is an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisville. She is broadly interested in the community ecology of plant microbiomes and how we can harness plant-associated microbiomes to improve crop health. She obtained a PhD in biology at Indiana University and a doctoral minor and graduate certificate in college pedagogy. She has a passion for teaching and outreach. Currently, she is teaching introductory biology for non-majors, and she is researching how plant-associated microbiomes affect plant physiology. Yes, we really enjoyed talking to Natalie today on the podcast. We talked about a lot of different things. Topics of discussion include teaching during the pandemic, the importance of mentorship, allyship, encouragement, and the importance of feeling valued. And we also talked about Dr. Christian's, uh, just her teaching style. She teaches topics such as contraception, evolution, climate change, all of which can be topics that are uncomfortable for many students. And she approaches these conversations by providing students with the science which can help those students make informed decisions as citizens. Lastly, we also discussed her engagement with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, where she studied microbiomes in cacao plants. If you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, we would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, preferably on Apple Podcast. That really gets our podcast out there and makes it more visible to other listeners. And so we would really appreciate it. And as always, thank you for joining us. Natalie, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really excited to get a chance to catch up and really hear what you've been up to lately. Yeah, I'm excited to be here too. Um, I guess for everyone out there, Carly and I were in grad school um, together way back when in her former life as an ecologist. Um, So it's really fun to catch up and I'm really happy to be here. Great. So Natalie, before we get started, can you share a little bit about yourself? Maybe share parts of your identity that you think our listeners should know about? Yeah, so I, I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Louisville. Um, I just started in January, and so this is a new, a new gig for me. Um, so I, I grew up in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I was raised there, I went to college there, and then I went to Indiana for graduate school. Um, I'm really excited about ecology, but when I was at IU, I also really fell in love with teaching. Um, And so I'm really excited to be in this new position that I have in Louisville because um, my job is tenure track, um, but I actually have um, more of a teaching focus than a typical tenure track job at a large research institution would be. So I'm 70% teaching. So that's a huge part of my life, a huge part of my identity. Um, and uh, especially given everything that's going on right now with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's kind of shaken that up, but it's um, it's still been really interesting to kind of explore that recently. Um, so yeah, that's... I guess that's a little bit about me and what I've been up to recently. How has teaching been for you now that everything is virtual? How how have you managed going online with everything, especially since a lot of your learning of teaching was very much hands-on in the classroom? How has the shift been for you? Yeah, so it was was really difficult at first. Um, So I guess a a little bit of information. So I here in the in the spring and Currently, I'm teaching two large lecture courses or two sections of the same course, an intro bio course for non-majors, which even before I I started, I was telling people that that's what I was going to be teaching when I was about to move to Louisville. 
And they were like, oof, good luck with that. <laughs> um, because it, I, think, I think intro courses, these large survey courses are notoriously difficult for students and instructors. Students, because I think there's a lot of perception of these classes as being weed out classes, um, a lot of like high stakes testing, um, not a lot of engagement with the, your classmates or your instructor. And from a, an instructor's point of view, it's difficult because you just like look out and you see a sea of faces and it can be difficult to connect with people and to get students involved. And particularly with non-majors, uh, students come from a real diversity of backgrounds. Um, not everybody is there because they're excited about the subject. A lot of them are there because like they got to knock out a gen ed science requirement. Um, and so people warned me that, that it was going to be really difficult to teach, but honestly, it's been so fun. <laughs> um, I mean, I really, I, my philosophy in uh, teaching this class is that, I mean, not all of my students are like me when I was in college. I mean, they're not biology nerds. Um, that's not why they're there. Um, a lot of my students are interested in health. They're pre-health, they're pre-nursing. Um, they are wanting to be teachers. They're just there to get their general education science requirements. So they're all over the board. Um, and so for me, my biggest goal is to just kind of teach them the parts of biology that are really useful for them understanding in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, like we just talked all about reproduction and contraception. We're about to move into climate change. Earlier this semester, we talked about um, pathogens in the immune system, and we focused on coronavirus um, for part of that. We talk about evolution, which is um, something that a lot of them don't get a good education of when they're in high school, particularly here in Kentucky. Um, and so we're able to hit all of these different um, sort of points that I think just really show how biology is really, and this is, it's what's written in my syllabus, but it's like how it's woven into the fabric of our lives and how it can really help us like make healthcare decisions for ourselves and our families and to vote and to do all of these things that are just important as a citizen. Um, so I really care deeply about this class. Um, and I think it really impacts students in a much different way than like an intro majors course would, where they're really just trying to get that foundational material for their major. I see this as like getting foundational knowledge for their lives. And so I just love this course. I think it's so fun, even though it comes with a very unique set of challenges. But moving online, I guess that was your original question. I just wanted to give you a little context. <laughs> Um, moving online was tough, um, especially because, I mean, a lot of a, a lot of students have so many other things going on in their lives right now. Um, they're taking care of families. They're dealing with health issues. They're first responders. They're um, essential workers. They're doing all sorts of things. Um, but they've been pretty receptive, actually, to the online format. I think a lot of them are struggling, especially this semester when I'm, I have first semester, first years, right? It's their first semester of college and they're taking this class and they're online and they're trying to figure out what going to a university is like. Um, but they're responding pretty well. And I think one thing that's nice is that they can, I'm asynchronous. Um, so I'm posting all of my lectures um, and posting all of our homeworks and then they have like a set amount of time that they can do things. And I do think for some of them that really kind of fits well with their lives right now because they can work it in and around. Um, other things. So have you gotten any sort of pushback on some of the topics that you Surprisingly, covered? no. Oh, I, that was something I was really worried about too. Not yet. I mean, yeah. This is only my second <laughs> semester teaching this course. Um, yeah. And not yet. I mean, I try to be really respectful when I'm talking about some things, um, like particularly evolution. Like I start with a disclaimer mm -hmm. that like, we're not here to talk about religion. Like that's not that's not the point. Like, I don't want to step on anybody's like personal and religious beliefs. We're just talking about the science. Um, and so I try to lead with um, disclaimers. Um, we talk another, another thing that we talk about that I think is really important, especially right now is we talk about um, uh, biology of race and how races aren't biologically distinct groups. Um, and I start 
by doing a disclaimer, like it's important that we talk about race, but this is, I'm not an expert. Like if you are interested in learning about these things more from like a social and cultural perspective, um, like get involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, talk to an expert. I am not an expert. I'm just a biologist. So I can talk about the biology. And so I think by sort of like priming students with those sort of disclaimers, they are more receptive to things. Um, with, um, when we talk about pathogens and immunity, I mean, we hit really hard, like vaccines don't cause autism, but that's a, a, like a title on a slide. Um, and we talk about like why people think that and why people are nervous about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. And uh, by grounding it all in the science, I think students are really receptive to it. Um, when we talked about vaccines last semester, before we got to that slide, I had a girl raise her hand because this was before we moved online. And she said, I saw on Twitter the other day that vaccines can cause autism. Is that true? Um, so I, I think that maybe it's because a lot of my students are young. They're like 18, 19, right? They come in and they have maybe some semblance of preconceived ideas from either their families or their education or their social groups. Um, but they don't really know and they are curious and they're they're driven by inquiry and I think maybe that's why there's less pushback than maybe talking to a group of adults um I mean I do have a, a, adults I mean like people that are my age in my class returning students but most of them tend to be um traditional college aged but yeah I was nervous about the pushback <laughs> Yeah, that just seems so courageous to go straight into that, you know, second semester of teaching. Um, I mean, I totally agree with your educational philosophy. I used to be a, a high school teacher, mm. and I always felt like education should be about how to basically better your life, how to be an informed citizen, how to function mm -hmm. in the world. Um, so I love your philosophy. I just, it took me a while to jump into some of those topics with my students. So I'm pretty impressed by just your willingness to take those risks. Yeah. And I wonder if like maybe having gone online is in some ways a blessing in disguise. Um, because I mean, it is a, like, it, it's easier when you can kind of hide behind a computer screen, right? And yeah. have sort of like notes planned out and what you're going to say. And you can, because we're, I'm recording things, I can like redo things if I want. Mm -hmm. I, I rarely do <laughs> just because I don't have time to do that. Yeah. But <laughs> the option is there. So you have like a safety net. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the lecture I gave this semester on race and biology, I was so much more comfortable than last semester when I did it in person because it was before we moved online. Like mm -hmm. I was feeling really nervous because like a large, a large, degree of my students are are black and African-American. Um, we have a large black population in Louisville and at the university. And I didn't want people to think like, who's this white lady like getting up and talking to us about about race, even though it's situated within yeah. the science. And so being able to sort of like be behind a computer screen, I think is easier for conversations like that, especially when you're not an expert and you don't want to step on toes and you're, you're just trying to... Um, like get all of the like real information out there. Um, so I think in some ways teaching online has been easier for those like tougher topics, mm -hmm. even though like I miss, I miss being in the classroom with students so much. It's such a big component of it. Yeah. Natalie, I'm reflecting back on my education as a ecologist as a biologist and I have two thoughts that I really want to reflect and I, I would love to talk yeah. about one I feel like scientists in general biologists especially ecologists we are really comfortable with difficult conversations about race about anti-science about you name it I don't know what it is about psychology but I feel like there's a big barrier to talking about those topics, despite us dealing with it every single day with our patients. Um, so that's the first thought. I want to give you the second one so I don't forget about it and I'm losing it. Yes. I also feel like I've been really fortunate to have professors that are really amazing, really kind of up on the literature on education. I haven't seen that so much with psychology and I don't really know what that's about. 
Um, but also I really want to talk about how psychologists can become just better teachers in general and really kind of step outside themselves and try something new in the classroom. I, I, think it, I think it speaks to an area just like in the academy in, ge in general that's a problem is that <clears throat> we go through all this training in our subject matters and our areas of expertise um, in the theory of whatever it is that we're researching um, or in psychology, like practicing clinically also. Um, but we rarely learn to teach and that ends up being a huge component for a lot of us that stay in academia like our first mm -hmm. jobs are educating students and mentoring students mm -hmm. and uh, i mean there's a lot of people there are a lot of people that they don't enjoy teaching and they don't enjoy mentoring students but they do it because it's kind of like goes hand in hand with being a professor and doing the research right and so i don't, I don't think it's a psychology thing i think it's a academia thing um and I mean, even looking back at my own education in biology, and I've, I've had this conversation multiple times with multiple people, like I was super interested in biology when I started college. Um, I knew I wanted to be a biologist already. Um, if I didn't know that after taking an intro biology class in college, mm. I don't think I would have stuck around. Um, like I didn't. I enjoyed parts of my intro biology classes in college, but just like the large lectures where you're just getting like talked at and then you're assessed with like four exams and that's it. And there's no participation and no conversation and no active learning, which is like the buzz phrase these days. Right. Like I don't, I, I don't think I would have made it um, because that's not how I learn best. And that's not how most students learn best. Um, but people continue to do it because it's how they learned and they don't have the knowledge or the time to figure out better ways of teaching. Um, so, I mean, for me, I, teaching has been a, a huge component of my life and also my training. Um, like I, I did a lot of education and pedagogy training as a graduate student. Um, that's, I think, really helped me transition into my position now um, well. I was just talking to a more senior member of my department the other day uh, who was saying something that I've, I've heard before in that, um, like, the first year or two of a professor position, a lot of people really, really struggle with the, with the teaching load and with teaching. And especially, I have a, a higher level of teaching than most other professors in my department. And he said that I seemed very, like, comfortable with it and very grounded. And it's because I wasn't just like thrown into the dark tank, right? Like I had the training and the education to do what I'm doing. And so I'm not having to like figure things out on the fly as much because I have like a solid mm -hmm. background. Um, and so I think it would really behoove um, programs, departments, fields to put more of an emphasis on teaching, not just to benefit future students of the people teaching, but also to benefit the people that are entering um, positions in which they are teaching just to maintain that balance and to be able to do a good job while also maintaining sanity. Um, because it is hard, but I mean, so is research. We just learn how to do it. And so it seems more straightforward. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, I mean, your questions weren't really questions, they were musings, but so here's some musings <laughs> of my own, um, just on how we need to do a better job of preparing our teachers to teach um, at the post-secondary mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I'm also curious about your perspective on having difficult conversations in the classroom. Um, I found that um, even though I was in a science career, I found like several more difficult conversations that were occurring. Whereas in our classrooms now as psychologists in training, we don't really have those. I think people are pretty averse mm -hmm. to it. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, it seems like you're really comfortable bringing up contraception, bringing up evolution, whatever it might be. What, what do you think, what about science makes it easier to do that? 
Or do you think it's science at all? Do you think it's maybe something else? Like the personalities it of these be, people? It might That's be a personality cool. thing from a science. I mean, for science, it, it might just be because, I don't know, I'm just like throwing out ideas now. But I mean, it, it could be because we're able to separate the the science from the personal and to just like focus on the science of the tough conversations. I mean, like during um, the contraception lecture that I just gave, I'm not, I'm not advocating for any particular Mm -hmm. method of birth control over the other. I mean, that's not my place to get involved. Um, I do point out the fact that we're not going to be talking about abstinence as a method of birth control in the class. Like I kind of like put that one to the side, but as far as other methods, like I'm just talking about the science of it, right? Like, okay. So we all know that the pill exists. How exactly um, does hormonal birth control work? Um, And the students have already learned about hormones and how they're involved in the menstrual cycle and how they're involved in pregnancy. And so we're building on that sort of foundational knowledge to apply how hormonal birth control operates. Um, and so it is, it is kind of, um, I don't know, like kind of like sterile in a way, right? Because I'm not having to like give advice on like, nobody's asking me like, what kind of birth control should I take? Like, that's not the point And that's not the conversations that's happening, which I think is the tougher part Mm -hmm. because it's like impacting lives um what we're doing instead Mm -hmm. is just like providing knowledge and a theoretical framework for then students to then be able to make their own more informed decisions um sort of whether that's in conjunction with their um physicians and their partners and whoever else um but that's kind of like set off to the side from what we're doing in the in the classroom so that, that might be part of it is being able to just deal with the science of things. And even though it intersects mm-hmm. with the personal, we're not actually needing to talk about the personal stuff in the classroom. Students can sort of do that on their own time mm-hmm. and in their own sort of like, um, like reflecting on the subject. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm kind of thinking based on what you said that maybe part of the reason these difficult conversations don't happen as much outside the scientific fields is because science seems to have a certain way of going about things like scientific theory, critical thinking. I feel like those are things you really learn in a science classroom a lot of the times. Um, and I don't know that the same kind of thinking is necessarily, you know, pushed or encouraged in other classrooms like I'm hearing you say basically you're presenting facts Mm -hmm. you're telling people how things are working and then they make their own decisions with those facts yeah whereas I feel like in other classrooms we don't really get as much of that yeah that's a that's a really good point I think like for instance like with the with like teaching about evolution um early on like right up front um we explain and students have already learned like what a theory is in science and how a theory in science, which is like um, having multiple lines of evidence that strongly support an idea, like the theory of gravity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How that's different from like a theory in everyday life. Like, oh yes, I have a theory about how that works. So we've, we cover that. And then when we introduce the, the theory of evolution, It's like, okay, well, we've learned that theory now means that there's multiple lines Mm -hmm. of evidence um, and we can do these tests of hypotheses that can either prove or disprove. And we've done all these tests and over and over we see lines of evidence for evolution by natural selection, um, which is really different from faith and from religion, right? Like we don't, we're not constantly trying to prove it wrong. With religion, it's like it's somebody's personal belief and it's what they hold true, but it's not subject to constant inter- iterations of, of testing. So we can't even compare the two. Um, they're just like two completely different realms. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of how we separate the, the religion out. And I mean, I mentioned before that I haven't gotten a lot of pushback and I, I have had students reflect. I always have students do 
um, after the class period, like either like a muddiest point, like what they're still confused on or a most important point. And I had students reflect on the fact that um, like they can think about evolution separate from their own religious beliefs, which I think is really great because I think in a lot of um, uh, other situations, whether it's a family situation or a, an ed, like in a classroom, um, students aren't learning that they can like still be like be situated in their religion, but also have an understanding of how evolution works and that evolution isn't something you believe in. Like it's just a process. Um, right. And yeah, separating that sort of belief from scientific fact um, is is something that I think is really important. And I feel I feel like I keep getting off on tangents, but it's fine. <laughs> this is great, Natalie. I'm actually really happy that the conversation has taken us here. I think it's really important to talk about, and I think that people can still benefit yeah. from it because this is what happened. This is what's happening in our communities. This is what's happening in the classrooms mm-hmm. all around us. And no, for sure. I mean, I had a student last semester tell me after class again before we went online that in her previous biology classroom in high school um, in the Louisville area, um, her her teacher, her high school biology teacher, um, introduced the topic of evolution by saying that evolution isn't real, but that she has to teach it. Like that's how she introduced the topic. And that's just so backwards from how like I think things should be and what my philosophy is, is that our role as educators is to give students, kind of like just to echo what you were saying, Laura, is to give students this knowledge and then let them grapple with it and let them figure out how it fits in with their lives, but to give them the best scientific information that we, that we have sort of as a foundation for that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I love how you encourage this kind of thinking that's not as dualistic. Like I feel like our society has moved in a very dualistic, um, you know, direction lately where it's like, it's either this or it's that Mm -hmm. you're either, you know, Republican or you're a Democrat, you're either religious or you're a scientist. And I love that you encourage people to, you know, you can hold both those things together and that's fine. Yeah. And it's like, it's not my job to tell people how to be, I mean, I have my own personal opinions about things, but it's not my job to push that on my students. It's my job to give them information that helps them make educated decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So can we pivot and talk about your research a little bit? Um, First question for you, can you tell our listeners why fungi rule the world? (laughs) Fungi are the best. Um, fungi are so cool. Um, so fungi do amazing things and such diverse things and we need them on our planet. Um, so like a huge thing that fungi do are decompose things. So if, um, we didn't have fungi around, we would just like everything that dies, every like poop that is pooped, like every, everything would still be sticking around and we would just be surrounded by like smelly death all the time. Um, fungi also make a lot of the foods and drinks that we consume. They're responsible for fermentation, anything from, uh, and, and leavening. So anything from like bread to wine, to beer, to kombucha, to yogurt, or no, I guess yogurt is bacteria, but, um, you know, like all of these yeasts particularly are fermenting things and leavening things. Um, fungi are really important medicinally. Um, so lots of chemical compounds have been derived by fungi or derived from fungi, um, antibiotics. I mean, penicillin is a, is a classic one that comes from a mold. Um, but even chemotherapy drugs and other things are derived from fungal compounds. Um, and I mean, there's so much about fungi that we don't even know. So I, I study fungi um, that are called endophytic fungi. So endo means inside of and phytic means plant. Um, so these are fungi that live inside of plants. Um, 
so just like how we have a microbiome, like we have tons of bacteria in our gut that help digest our food and bacteria on our skin that help protect us from disease. Um, other organisms, including plants, have a microbiome also, um, but a lot of them have um, major fungal components of their microbiome. And so I study all of these microscopic fungi that live in plant leaves and do things like help protect plants from pathogens and herbivores. Um, they can regulate how plants photosynthesize, so make their own sugars. Um, they can affect how plants tolerate drought. Um, so they can have major, major impacts on plant um, ecology and physiology or functioning, how plants exist in their environments, how plants interact with other organisms. Um, and yeah, so that's what I, I study. And I, I study how these communities come together um, how the different members interact and how they affect their, their plants. I would love to hear a little bit about your research in Panama. Um, I remember going to a few of your talks where you talked about what you were doing in Panama and I found it really fascinating. Can you, can you share a little bit about yeah. what you were So I, doing I started going to Panama in 2014 was my, my first trip down there. Um, so the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute um, is located in Panama, um, headquartered in Panama City, but then there's a major research station there um, called, uh, or on an island, <clears throat> excuse me, called Barrow, Colorado Island. So this is an island in the center of the Panama Canal um, in a lake called Lake Gatun. Um, so this is a man-made lake. It was flooded back in ooh, the 1910s. Um, I could be wrong about that, but sometime around there. So what, what was a, a hill ended up becoming this island. And it's now a research preserve, a national monument, um, where scientists from all over the world, <clears throat> um, including Panama, do research. Um, and so the Smithsonian has a base down there um, and is involved in that. And so I was able to sort of plug into that network and do part of my PhD dissertation work down there. Um, and so what I was primarily interested in is how um, these communities of endophytes, these fungi that live in plants, um, like where the fungi come from, the different factors that influence how these communities come together because you can look at one plant and look at another plant and they might have different fungal communities in their leaves. Um, and so figuring out like, okay, like why do communities come together the way they do and what factors in the environment um, influence those communities and that community composition. Um, and I had, well, at the time they weren't collaborators, they are now, but I found people in Panama working with the Smithsonian that had a lot of knowledge about the fungal communities that associate with cacao. So Theobroma cacao, that's where chocolate comes from. Um, and had been working with this system. And so I reached out to them and I said, hey, I'm interested in these questions. Could we work together? Could we use a system? And they were really enthusiastic. And so um, I sort of got plugged in and these are collaborations that I, I, still, I still have. I haven't been to Panama now in um, a couple of years, but uh, or I guess about a year and a half ago, I went for the, I went most recently, um, uh, which I can talk about in a second. But um, that was a really, really sort of, um, I guess, critical part of my, of my dissertation. I mean, I cold emailed these people just being like, hey, can we work together? <laughs> and it just became a huge part of my PhD, a huge part of my academic life. I've made collaborators and friends that, I mean, I'm going to carry with me for years and years. And it was because I just like emailed a couple people out of the blue saying like, can we do something together? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's exciting because I mean, in the tropics, everything is so diverse and so are these fungal communities. And so there's a lot, a, a lot to understand. It's very complex and very complicated, which can make it very difficult to study. Um, but also, like, diversity and biodiversity are amazing. And, I mean, in those systems, it's, I mean, it's so clear. I mean, I spent the last couple of years in Illinois, 
doing similar work, but in soybean fields. Um, and the, the difference, not just in like landscape, because clearly like a soybean field and a tropical <laughs> rainforest are very different places. Um, but just like, if you look at, I mean, you, you can grow these fungi out like in the lab, like in Petri dishes and just the diversity of fungi that I found in my tropical plants versus my temperate agricultural monoculture plants. It's just like, there's no, there's no comparison. It's striking how different the communities are, how diverse the communities are, how abundant these fungi are, which makes total sense, but um, it, it really is clear. So yeah, I've had experience in a, in a lot of very, very different systems. Very cool. You were gonna share something about your experience in oh, Panama. Can you, can oh, you talk yeah. about that a little bit? It, it's just like a funny, story which i think speaks to how we can overcommit ourselves as academics mm. um this the most recent time i went to panama was um in march of 2019 um and i was invited by my collaborator there alan um to come give a talk um, they have a weekly seminar series with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, and he invited me to come give a talk and I was going to stay for a week and we were going to work on this paper together. And so of course I say yes, because that sounds like so much fun. And then I, like around the same time that that's going to happen, I got my invitation to come interview at the University of Louisville for the job that I now have. Um, and the weeks that they gave me, um, most of like the options that I had mostly overlapped with this Panama trip, but I like didn't want to give up on my Panama trip. And so <laughs> what I ended up doing is I ended up coming, I ended up coming down to Louisville, interviewing, driving back to Illinois, and then the next day flying out to Panama on my birthday for this week-long <laughs> visit and it's like who in their right mind would schedule things like back to back to back like that on like spending a birthday on an airplane and just like looking back it just makes me laugh because I think it really does speak to um how we like what we consider to be kind of like normal life in academia like it's it's not so normal sometimes <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm curious about overcommitting and kind of how you've dealt with that throughout uh, your I, I overcommit all the time. I have a really hard time saying no to things. Um, I just like, I always want to be involved and I always see these cool opportunities and I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I want to do that. And then before I know it, I'm signed up for too many things. I already, I'm on like pre-tenure you're not supposed to sign up for a lot of service or like committee work and I'm on like four committees <laughs> and so I've already like I told my husband and I told um I meant like a senior mentor in the department to like already like hold me accountable like I can't say yes to anything else like I can't be on any other committee and my mentor in the department was like yeah you're already signed up for too many things like cut cut it back but I mean, it's, I, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed being involved and I've always enjoyed working with teams on things, um, regardless of what that thing is, whether it's like planning something or just like having something run, like I'm on the graduate student committee. So I'll be working with like reviewing the applications at the prospective graduate students for the, the department. And I mean, I just see that as such like important and integral work to how uh, any system can run. And so I have a really hard time saying, saying no to things, but I don't know, it's fun as long as I can find time to do other things. But I feel like my, I feel like my time management has been pretty, pretty good. So. Yeah. I only ask because I struggle with the same exact thing. You know, I always beat myself up later about not saying no mm -hmm. to something, but it always seems like a great idea. So yeah, I can really... yeah, and I mean, and I think that's one thing that um, particularly women have a hard time with. Like, I think we often overcommit to things related to service and mentoring. Um, mm -hmm. 
either because we want to or because we're um, sought out as people to do these sort of extracurricular things um, and tasks. Um, and that does take away sometimes from what we're most often judged for, which like in my field is research, right? Um, and so I, I do think there's a, there's sort of an imbalance there, not all the time, but often, often. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Could you share a little bit about your experience being a woman in a science field? Um, it's something that I'm really interested in hearing more about and doing reading on now, not only your interest in women in STEM, but just being a woman yourself going through the PhD program, getting a tenure track, you know, starting at least the tenure process. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a really complicated thing to talk about, right? Because it's all very context dependent. I mean, historically women have been excluded mm -hmm. from, from STEM fields. Um, that's changed a lot, particularly in psychology, psychiatry, biology, ecology, biomedical, engineering. Um, all of those fields um, now have at least half, if not more women in them, at least at the undergraduate level. Um, so there are some fields where that's really, really changing. Other fields like computer science and physics, where it's like, not changed at all in recent decades. Um, but there is, I think, a lot more um, like equality in numbers, at least, especially at lower um, levels of like educational achievement, like at the undergraduate level. Um, every step up you go in the mm -hmm. sort of hierarchy of positions, at least in, I'm going to just restrict our conversation to academia because that's what no. Um, mm -hmm. But like as you go to like PhD and then postdoc and then assistant professor and then associate professor and then full professor, every level women drop out um, mm -hmm. at higher rates than men drop out because men are dropping out too. Um, but we do lose women the higher we go in sort of an academic hierarchy. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of theory behind that. Um, but I guess personally for me as a woman in science that thinks about these things a lot, um, I've, I mean, I've really personally had an excellent experience as a woman in science. And I think that's due to really fantastic mentors that I've had, really great communities that I formed um, having, um, allies, especially senior allies, advisors, um, both men and women that have encouraged me, um, at every level and have told me it's going to be okay when I'm freaking out about something, um, that haven't pushed me in, um, ways that make me feel like I shouldn't be there have accepted when I have I different ideas about how I want to do something. Like for instance, when I was in um, grad school, one of my PhD dissertation chapters was a, an education chapter. So like I did um, research on um, uh, pedagogy and that was very supported by like my entire committee, which was made up of all men, um, were really supportive of this idea. And so mm -hmm like making my unique perspectives feel valued. Um, that doesn't happen to everyone um, and for everyone. Um, I know a lot of women um, that have felt um, belittled or excluded or discriminated against in um, our field, in neighboring fields. Um, and that can be really difficult because I mean, one thing that happens no matter who you are, um, I think in academia, is your sense of self um, becomes very, very tied to your work. Um, and so whether it's like you being um, pushed out or your work being pushed out, like it's really easy to feel um, sort of like excluded and disregarded as a 
person as a human, um, even if it's just like your work that's being like attacked, I guess. I don't know if that's the best word to describe it. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, people do bring different strengths to the table. And I mean, I think it would have been really easy for me to be like, I want to do research and education. And for somebody on my committee, for my advisor, like anybody in a position of power to say like, oh, well, that's trivial. Like that's silly. And then I think like, oh, like maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I'm not bringing the right thing to the table, even though like we do need people like that. We do need people like me that have different interests and different strengths to contribute to the diversity that makes us all function. So I don't know. I've had a really, really positive experience. Um, I also have a really, really supportive um, partner um, who um, shares in housework, who shares, like we read, I mean, we're both in academia. And so we read each other's grant proposals. We talk about teaching together. And so I think having him as like sort of my, my um, balance in all of this has also been really useful. Um, a lot of, I and mean, we don't, we don't have kids, but a lot of, a lot of women, I think particularly right now during the pandemic, um, like the sort of the burden of childcare falls to the women a, a lot of times or the woman in a partnership, um, at least in a, in a heterosexual partnership. And so that can also be not like a push out of academia, but a pull away, right? Like there are these push mm -hmm. factors that push and and pull. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I have time to do things because my husband like picks up the slack in other areas. And when one of us is stressed, the other person can can show up. And um, I ha having that personal um, sort of grounding in a professional career mm -hmm. makes all the difference. Um, so yeah, so I feel like I've been really lucky in some ways, um, that I haven't had the same experiences that a lot of other women, um, or people of color have had to, um, face that either pushes out, pushes them out of academia or pulls them out of academia. Um, but that doesn't mean those factors aren't there. Um, those factors absolutely are there. They're super prevalent. Um, and yeah, I think, I think being aware of those and then also being in a situation where like, I love my job um, and I'm so happy with my job and I feel so valued in my, in my job. Um, but those things can coexist. Like you can be a happy individual in a field where there is still like, yeah. there are still major barriers to certain groups, certain populations in that, in that field. There's a few things that I want to highlight that you just said, because I think they're really, really important. The importance of mentorship, allyship, and encouragement from people who are in power. I think that is something that we need to start thinking about more. What are we doing? Um, what are we doing to make sure that people feel more included? Um, yeah, mentorship, allyship, encouragement. Like, what, what can we do as people in power, whether it's our whiteness, whether it's our position of power in the therapy room, whether it's being a teacher, what can we do to make sure that people feel more included? And then you also mentioned the importance mm -hmm. of feeling valued. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so important to feel valued, feel as though what you're doing matters. I think that is just, it kind of gives me goosebumps a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and that. I think like particularly right now with the with the pandemic, um, I think that's more important now than ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, my my students, um, as much as I uh, think they're enjoying this class, which I I do have reason to believe they're enjoying it, because I do a, a lot of even though we're asynchronous, like I do a lot a lot of like feedback exercises. Um, and they're enjoying it, but I know also a lot of them are struggling with not just this class, but just like being online in general, figuring out college online, figuring out college during a pandemic. And a lot of them are having a difficult time with that um, and look for advice. Like they email me and ask me like, what, what can I do? Like I'm having a hard time. Like how should I fix my behavior? How should I fix how I study? What blah, blah, blah. And 
I find that mm-hmm. a, a huge thing is just to be like, like everyone is having a hard time right now, but you got this. I believe in you. Like I try to tell my students that as much as I can, because I think that hearing somebody that you see as a really influential person, I mean, like I'm new to being a professor, but I mean, my students don't know that or my, like, and they see me as this like, like prominent authority figure, right? Even though like, I don't always feel like an authority figure, but they see me as I'm their their (laughs) teacher, I'm their professor. And so seeing somebody say like, you got this, like, I think that makes a huge difference, especially during a time of such uncertainty. I mean, I was just the the faculty mentor, my faculty mentor in the department um, that I was talking to um, the other day was like telling me and like, I I feel like I'm doing a good job. Like I'm making progress toward tenure. I'm hitting like teaching and research and service goals. And like, I feel good. But we were talking about how things are going for me. And he was saying that I seem like I'm on like a great track and that I'm like sort of like exceeding expectations with like the things that I'm doing so far and hearing that coming from somebody that I see as a mentor is still really encouraging to me and gives me more of a sense of um, like confidence and satisfaction than even being able to sort of self-reflect and be like, well, objectively I'm doing well, but to hear somebody else say that instead of just me like thinking it in my head, like that, that's impactful. Um, And so I think we do need to be um, very cognizant of our roles as mentors, even if we're still being mentored by other people, like there are always gonna be younger people that we're mentoring. Um, And being very aware of the power that our words can have because some things can stick with us for years. Mm -hmm. And the person who said it probably forgot it like 10 minutes later, right? But if we hear it, sometimes that becomes just like imbued into our identity and so being really careful about what we say and how we can find ways to be supportive of how we can find ways to uplift. Um, I mean, that's not going to hurt. I mean, unless you're just like giving students like a, a false sense of security when really they need to step it up. But then you say like, you need to put in a lot of hard work. You need to do X, Y, and Z. It's not going to be easy, but I believe you can do it. Like that's what we need to be doing not just like shutting students mm-hmm. down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Natalie, we have one more question for you. It's it's a bit of a big one, um, but I'm wondering over the past eight months to a year, I'm wondering if you can reflect back and think of something that you've really learned, maybe, maybe one lesson that you've learned and how you envision that moving forward? I've learned a lot of things in the last eight months. So it's kind of hard to, to answer that question. I think, I think one thing that I learned early on in the last, like within the first couple of months of starting this new job. Um, and I sort of alluded to it earlier, but it's been a bit, a big lesson for me, um, is that, I, not all of my students are like me. Um, I mean, like, obviously, right? Like, come on. But really, like, when I started teaching, I kind of felt disappointed when I would see, like, my students get, um, not all of them, but, like, my students that got Cs or Ds or Fs on an exam, I was like, oh, come on. Like, that wasn't that hard or that aren't turning in quiz it like aren't showing up for class and taking quizzes like come on why are you doing that and like I found it really frustrating because I was like how could they just like not show up to class on a quiz day like why isn't 20 percent of my class here and like being able to kind of switch my perspective and realize that like okay like that student isn't isn't me when I was 18 or 19 like that student has different Um, priorities and goals and expectations and obligations and they might be perfectly happy like not showing up here they are getting a BRC in the class like and that's their prerogative and like I can give all I can give and if a student just like 
isn't going to pick up everything that I leave, like that's okay. And that doesn't mean that I'm not a good teacher or doing my job well. It doesn't mean that that student is um, like a failure or that that student doesn't um, like have motivation or care. It just means that that's not their priority. Like it was my priority. Um, and I think that did a lot for my mental health um, because I was feeling really stressed at first. Like how could a student not just like, just not take a test or like not turn in an assignment? Like I didn't get it. And it made me feel like, I felt like it was my like personal fault. Um, like it was something about me. Um, and being able to take a step back, I think, and realize that I mean, they're their own people and I will just do the best I can and hope for the best, but also recognize that if a student gets a C, like maybe that's all they were going for. And they were just like wanting to allocate the rest of their time to other things. And that's okay. So that, I think that was a big lesson for me. And it was kind of like a a mindset that I had to put my, like I had to force myself to adopt this mindset because it felt very unnatural, but it really has helped. And I mean, that's really different from like seeing that a student is repeatedly like not showing up and reaching out to that student and being like, Hey, is everything okay? Like just to make sure that everything is fine. Um, but for students that like occasionally miss or just like bomb something and let it roll off their backs, like, that's okay. And that's not, it's not my fault. So I think that was, that was something big that helped me. Cause I, I always want to help everybody. Like I want to, I want everyone to succeed and like, that's a good goal to have, but also sometimes you can't, you just can't. Um, so yeah, that was something really big that I learned this year. It sounds like you were really able to accept things. I sort of the way had to force are. myself and... to. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. 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 No, I I I wish I would have learned that when I was teaching because it sounds like I could have saved myself a lot of suffering. Yeah. I mean it's it's been a a journey. And I mean, like, again, I'm only in my second semester of doing this. And I had I mean, I mentioned before I had a lot of experience. Um like learning about teaching and teaching in grad school, but it was always like these little small classes um, with like 20 students where I can keep tabs on everybody and know everything that's going on and really have this sense of um, like accountability. But I mean, like I have 215 students a semester. Like I can't do that with everybody. It's just not, it's just not possible. Um, I can, but I can put, everything that I have out on the table. And if they choose to not take opportunities, like if a student doesn't want to do an easy extra credit thing, like it's not because I failed as a teacher. It's just because they chose not to do it. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Natalie. I really enjoyed our conversation. It kind of took, yeah, it took an interesting turn and I am very thankful for that. So um, thank you for being with us. And I really hope that your semester thank finishes. You. Yeah, we finishes okay. were about, we, my students have an exam um, on um, Monday, and then we're moving into uh, ecology and climate change. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Fine. Yeah. But that's awesome. Yeah. Thank thanks so for, much, thanks for inviting me both. I had a really good time. Hello, Unconventional Dyad podcast listeners. We are so excited that you are joining the conversation with us. If you're liking what you're hearing and you would like to support the podcast, there are a few different ways to do that. We have a Patreon page now. So if you visit patreon.com slash unconventional dyad, you can support us through four different support tiers. You can also support us through the Anchor app. There's a support function and you can choose from three different tiers from as little as 99 cents per month. We really hope that you are liking the content so far. You can also check out our website where we post weekly blogs that you can comment on and we hope that you join in the conversation with us. Let us know what you think.
To cry, cry me a river. 